listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Today is story time with Sarah Day. It has been a long time since I've spent several hours of my life researching somebody's story. So this was fun to, (laughs) to do this again. And this time there was a whole book written on this person's life, like an actual legitimate 180 page book. Um, which is why this podcast may get a little long because I had a lot. I had a lot of information this time, so You're I not thought going to read us 180 pages. So I was very tempted to just read you the book, but that's very <laughs> against copyright. So you're getting the Sarah version of the 180 page book, plus some other resources uh, that I got to reach out to some people and, and get some more historical tidbits. So I had so much fun researching this story. This is probably my favorite one. I might say that every time, but I think legitimately this is. This is such a good story. Dr. Bessie Raywinkle is who we're learning about today. She is a truly amazing person. And what's actually very interesting, and maybe you'll pick up on this too, I found a lot of similarities between her story and Rosa Young's story. Mm. They lived at about the same time in American history. Bessie was born 17 years before Rosa. So in general terms, they lived in a similar time period in America. Obviously, their experiences were very different. They lived in different parts of the country and just had very different experiences. But their their spirit of courage and of moving forward and, and all of these these qualities were very similar between the two of them, which is very interesting and maybe iconic of turn of the century America. That was kind of a prevailing way that people lived around the 1900s. I feel like maybe that's just me looking back on history. Before I dig in, I also wanted to say when I started reading her 180 page book, which is Dr. Bessie, it was written as a family narrative that wasn't actually going to be published, but her husband actually put it together into a book and published it after she passed away. What I thought was going to be her story, what I had assumed was going to be her story was not anywhere close to what her story actually turned out to be. I was like, okay, Lutheran lady, doctor, she probably like grew up in this German Lutheran household, married a pastor, went to med school, was a doctor, you know, pretty simple. That is not even close. Most of my research does come from the book, Dr. Bessie. And I knew I was going to love this book when I got to the preface, which is like page two of the book. <laughs> page oh. XIV. Like. Yes. yes. I wasn't even in her story yet. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. So I'm actually going to read you uh, part of the preface because this like sets the stage for the whole idea behind her story and why they shared her story as well. So the preface said, we trust that the story may contribute something to that end, uh, speaking about appreciating the struggles of those who came before them, especially on the frontier, and also serve as an encouragement to missionaries, pastors, and ministers' wives, and to all of those who are struggling against discouragement and what may seem to them insurmountable difficulties on their own particular frontiers. But we also hope that this might serve as an encouragement to others to tell their story. Every generation has had its dedicated and heroic women who rendered unusual services to the church or society at large. But in a community in which only men seemed to be worthy of recognition and honor, there was no one to tell their story. In the life of our Savior, women played an important role, and the Holy Spirit saw fit to have their names recorded in the Gospels as a shining memorial for the generations that would follow. Why should we not do the same for the Marys, Mary Magdalene's, and Martha's of our day? Mm. That is like 
book drop right there. I, mm-hmm. I like slammed my book down and yelped when I read that. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. I am going to love this. So this is Dr. Bessie's story. Bess Lee Effner was born on March 28, 1873 in Galesburg, Jasper County, Iowa, which is a tiny farm town about 40 miles east of Des Moines. So like eastern, east central Des Moines. She grew up in Pearson, which is 200 miles west on the other side of the state, about 30 miles east of Sioux City. And I'm very curious why they made that move, but they didn't talk about that. But that's a, that's a long way to travel in 1873. Her dad was also a doctor, Dr. William Effner. He actually fought in the Civil War, and his ancestors had emigrated from Germany about 150 years earlier. He was a pioneer, having come west to Iowa when it was open for settlement after living in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Indiana. Her mom was from Virginia and was actually related to Robert E. Lee. So Bessie's middle name, Lee, is huh. for that family history, hmm. which I thought was kind of cool. Interesting. I'm also curious how they met, but that wasn't right. Him. I know. I so would have been in the. Know. He was from the North, obviously, right? Yeah. And she was from. I know. I want to know. I want to know their story. Uh, her grandpa. I'm just and- going to put it out there. And I don't know if this was even a thing then, but it was probably the Walther League. That's how uh, I probably mate, right? That's what they do. Probably not. Okay. No, no, I know. The timing is wrong. Yeah. But wouldn't but, it be cool? But everybody met in Walther League. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just so her, your grandpa and great grandpa had also been doctors. So this was a gene that ran very strongly in her family. Her uncle and her brother would also become doctors. So she was immersed in this life from a very young age, and she really loved helping with the medical duties in their country office. And they didn't have fancy offices in the country, like the doctor's offices we think of today as these big buildings with like shiny floors and everything's white. But their offices were usually in their houses, and they stocked their own supplies and drugs. And it was a very like one-man operation in the home because you're in the middle of farm country. So very different from how it is today. Bessie wanted to be a doctor from a very young age, but at this time in history, women were typically not doctors. It was pretty strictly a man's profession. Young women were expected to get married, have babies, maybe work as teachers or assistants, uh, but they typically didn't pursue professions like medicine. She actually had a marriage proposal from a very eligible bachelor in her hometown, and her parents were on board with this. Mm. He was like the son of a banker pretty pretty high-ranking dude in in like farm life society and other girls were also after him but she wanted to go to medical school and that would require eight years of school because she hadn't gone to any like college level classes yet either it wasn't really socially acceptable to get married before school so she kind of had to make this choice Hmm. and she didn't tell anybody that she wanted to go to medical school because it was such a an unlikely thing to happen but a family friend mrs benson out of the blue asked her if she was going to go to medical school and that there were female doctors starting to practice out east. So after that conversation, she had enough courage to tell her dad that that's what she wanted to do. He had some hesitation because of the risk it would be for her future and also future marriage proposals. But when she told him that she had thought all of this through, what it would mean for her, uh, what it would mean for her future, that she had considered all of these things, and that she really wanted to be a doctor more than anything, he fully supported her, which is pretty amazing in the late 1800s to have that kind of family support. So off she went to school. She first 
had to get through undergraduate studies in order to actually progress to the professional level schooling. So she went to Morningside College in Sioux City, which was and still is a private liberal arts school affiliated with the United Methodist Church. So the first thing that I didn't know, Bessie grew up Methodist. She wasn't actually Lutheran and her family wasn't Lutheran, Mm -hmm. which was an assumption that I had made, which was not true. (laughs) But our Lutheran lady wasn't even Lutheran yet. But her family was a very religious family. She grew up in the church and she was very active in the Methodist church up until meeting her husband when that wouldn't be a thing anymore. So when she enrolled in school, the guy who had proposed marriage decided he didn't want to wait that long to marry her. So he ended up marrying someone else. Bessie was kind of hurt by that, but she was also like, well, now I can study. I can focus on my studies because I don't have anybody who's waiting for me. So Bessie, of course, excelled at college. She loved going to school and she loved learning all of these things. She took a year off between college and medical school to teach. So she would have the money to continue her education because school is expensive. Mm. So then she enrolled at Sioux City School of Medicine, which was the best known medical school in that part of the country at the time. It was a member of the American Association of Medical Colleges And now it's part of Iowa State University. Surprisingly, though, she wasn't the only woman in her class. There was one other woman, Clara McManus, and they ended up being lifelong friends Mm. because of this crucible of med school is the only two women. So they were study partners and roommates and they were kind of put together, but they ended up being friends for life. The male students didn't really treat them badly necessarily, but more like a nuisance. Like, why are you ladies in my medical school classes, you shouldn't be here. The guys called them hen medics, which was a derogatory term for women doctors at that time because they were supposedly unfit to be in the medical profession. Obviously not true because Bessie was, she was smart. So medical school then, pretty similar to at least the structure of medical school now. It's really, really hard. There's a lot to learn. They learned all of the medical terminology, practical application of things, interactions of the limited amount of drugs that they had. And she said in her book about medical school that it's amazing how much a human can withstand and adjust to when the only choice is to move forward and through it. She was also more and more amazed at how intricate the human body is and what a wonderful creation it is. And she would often quote the Psalms when she was learning about all of of this amazing creation the human body is. That is actually something that I remember really noticing in the classes I took when I went to college. I was my degree was for physical therapy, and so uh, I took all sorts of human anatomy and physiology classes. And as I got more and more advanced. I just became more and more in awe of mm-hmm. how interconnected everything is. And I was like, this is, humans are clearly the, you know, the pinnacle. They were God's artwork, right? Uh, like his, his masterpiece in putting it all together. Yeah. It's amazing. Yes. It's just really cool. I love it. <laughs> so Bessie successfully graduated after her four years of med school during which she really didn't pay any attention to men. Although if you did try to get her attention, she was like, nope, I got school dudes. I'm not, I'm not interested in marriage. Sorry. <laughs> didn't do a lot of like social activities. She was very focused and uh, her goal was to graduate. She wanted to be a doctor so badly. 
she was so proud when she could finally put doctor in front of her name. She did still have to pass board examinations. They were a thing back then like they are now. Of course, she passed with flying colors, but it was absolutely exhausting. But she would be a board certified doctor in the state of Iowa. That wasn't even the really hard part. This was the really hard part, setting up her first practice. So it's not like these days when these young doctors have established practices to join or hospitals to go to or to join another doctor in in an already established place in the middle of a city where obviously people will come to find you. And they're all obviously very good looking for some reason. Right. I know. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Doctors in these times and in the area of this country where she was in, in farmland, they had to find a town that needed a doctor, go to that town and set up a shop and hope people would come to them. So she thought, you know, a new doctor, she's like, I have all these skills. People are going to come find me because everyone's going to need a doctor. But it didn't really work that way. And on top of that, she was a woman and people were probably not going to readily accept a woman doctor until she could prove herself that she was on par with the male doctors who everybody thought were better than she was. So she was constantly dealing with gossip and how to conduct herself in her personal life. She had to balance all of these things of how she was seen and heard in society, who she talked to, who she was friends with, how much she told people, which social events to go to, because she was on this different level of people. And because of her professional life, it was just a weird relationship of of how to be in the community of people. Kind of similar to a pastor's life because of how solitary the profession can be and how many people you have to deal with and how many stories of these people you have that you end up knowing that you can't really talk to anybody about because that's, I mean, HIPAA wasn't a thing back then, but I'm sure they didn't really talk about people's medical issues with other people. So she ended up settling in Hinton, Iowa, which is a very small town, not too far from Sioux City and Pearson. So she stayed pretty close to where she already was. Starting a practice as a woman doctor at the turn of the century was absolutely no small task. She was so excited and proud to find a small place to set up her practice. And she set out her sign or what they called a shingle and it had her name on it. But she didn't actually put Bessie on the shingle because she knew that that would probably be a non-starter. Like, who is this Bessie woman? I'm what? Um, So she actually put Dr. B.L. Effner on it so that people Mm -hmm. would at least like come Mm -hmm. to her door. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The first knock on her door was a guy who was looking for a doctor for his wife because she was going into labor, going to have a kid. So he needed a doctor like now. He's like, uh, so where can I find him? And she's like, well, I'm the doctor. And then he's confused and he's like, uh, you're the doctor, but I'm looking for like a real doctor uh, like the other doctors. And she's like, well, I, I am a real doctor like the other doctors. And he's like, well, aren't there any other doctors? <laughs> and she's like, well, you can have me or you'll have to go to another town that's really far away. And so he's finally like, well okay, I guess you can come. So (laughs) she went with him and his wife was also like, who 
you're a doctor <laughs> as a woman, what? but she delivered a healthy baby. Everything went well. And so that was really good for business because then he told his friends that like, oh, sh- it's a woman doctor, but she's actually really good. Her next case was a really hard case of a young boy with pneumonia, which at the time was typically a pretty deadly disease because they didn't have any medicine that would treat it like penicillin. No antibiotics. No antibiotics at this time in history. But she was able to be really creative in her treatment and he survived. Hmm. So after those two cases, she started seeing more and more people. The word spread that she was actually a really good doctor and her practice actually started to be pretty successful. The medical fees that they talk about, obviously, they're going to be different from what they are today, but just seeing the numbers is a little jarring. So office calls were 50 cents or $1, maybe a little higher if they needed more resources. House calls in town were $1.50 during the day and $2 at night. Mm-hmm. And obstetrical cases were 15 to $20. Later, they were $25. And mileage for country calls was 50 cents per mile, which I mean, if you do the math on the inflation of that, the prices are still fairly low. But insurance wasn't a thing. Like you just paid the doctor for Mm -hmm. services and you were done. Mm -hmm. Very different medical scene back 150-ish years ago. That reminds me, if I can interrupt just briefly, about a story that I love that my grandfather on my mother's side told me once. He said when his, his wife, my grandmother, who was 16 at the time, they married young, was expecting her first baby. He went and got the doctor, and the doctor came out, did a prenatal visit, and pulled him aside and said, well, okay, we're all set. Uh, call me when her time comes, and that'll be $20, payment upon delivery. And Grandpa said, I didn't have it that day, and I didn't have it upon delivery. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow it all worked out in the end. But that was that was the, the medical world, you know, when house visits were a thing. And there were no insurance middlemen to negotiate Mm -hmm. the fees. The doctors would ask what they thought the patients could actually reasonably pay. Mm -hmm. And that was what they got. Yep. Very different. And uh, Dr. Bessie talks in her book, too, about how she also didn't always get paid because people couldn't always afford the service. But, I mean, she's not going to, like, tell them no because because they can't afford her. Like, she's going to do the procedure and whether or not they pay, well, that's just how it goes. Yeah. No, suddenly I was like remembering our, the ending of Jacob by a blood. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, and how she became a physician and she then was working in these very poor communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. yeah. So speaking of delivering babies, okay. going out into the country to deliver babies was this whole thing. There were no hospitals. So babies were born in homes. Uh, So she would make house calls for all of these deliveries. And we know that babies don't arrive uh, necessarily when we want them to. So Never. Not one of mine (laughs) arrived when I wanted them to. So maybe a woman would go into labor and so she would go out to meet them because it was time and the baby would wait for another day or two. So these calls could be quite lengthy at all times of day or night And they're out in the country. So she's traveling on horse and buggy because they obviously know cars yet. She's traveling on horse and buggy to get to these all these places out in the country. So it was a thing to go out to these cases. And she had a lot of them because at this time, I mean, if you're a young wife, you're probably having a lot of kids. So after she had been in her practice for about a year, 
She was settling in and a major life change happens. This is one of the sad parts of her life. Her sister-in-law was pregnant with her fifth child and the birth was just fine. But then a few days after the birth, she suddenly got really sick with puerperal infection, which sadly was not an uncommon thing at this time. It was very, very deadly to get this infection after birth. And unfortunately, it took the life of her sister-in-law, Nellie. So now her brother was left with five children, one of whom was a newborn, to care for. But then only a few months later, he also tragically dies. So now there are five really young orphans and they need to be taken care of by somebody. Mm. So Bessie would have taken them all in had she actually had the space and the means, but she was still boarding rooms in people's houses because she also didn't have a place of her own yet. So she found uh, a woman that was willing to take care of the baby, and Bessie paid her for the services, Uh, but then that boy was adopted by a family who really wanted a little boy. Her sister took the other boy, but he was also adopted by another family. So that left the three girls. And she found a woman who would care for the youngest, Rita, but there were two older girls, Elsie and Ina, and nobody wanted to care for them, which made me really sad. Mm -hmm. So after talking with the social workers in Sioux City, uh, those girls were placed in a home until they could find a better solution. And then because this wasn't tragedy enough for Bessie at this point in her life, she was actually starting to look forward to marriage. A man in the community was interested in her and they had been talking about getting married. But then just a few months later, he also died. So she's dealing with all of this stuff of death and sadness and tragedy and, and having to deal with all of this, plus keeping her practice alive so that she could also manage her own life. She said, it is remarkable what a human being can endure when the great issues of life are at stake. And I was given the necessary strength to go on. So things do look up for her a little later. Her father comes to visit her, which she desperately needed some time with her dad to like have that mental health boost. And he actually told her about a doctor moving out of a town called Moville, which is 18 miles east of Sioux City. It's a bigger town. And I looked it up in the 2010 census. It was more than three times bigger than Hinton, although Hinton is like 100 people. So still not that big, but bigger. And at this point in, you know, rural Iowa, that makes a difference. She could have her own office space with her own living quarters which would be a a huge thing. So having her own space meant that she could also provide for her nieces. Being in a better location with other established doctors would help her practice because it already had the schools, banks, churches, saloons, the livery barn because everybody needed horses. So this situation would be much better for her. The town paper actually published that she arrived in Moville in 1970, 1976, 1906. So she actually had advertising this time, too. So people knew she was there. This practice was way easier to start than her first one. So much easier to meet people, and they were actually open to seeing her. And she was closer to Sioux City to access her colleagues and her former teachers. And there were other doctors in town, too, so they could refer patients to each other. So there were actually three other doctors in this town. So everyone at this time, obviously using horses and buggies to get everywhere. And she had several harrowing journeys into the country at night to get to these confinement cases, women who were about to give birth. There were no streets, just dirt roads, no streetlights. Bridges could be in pretty terrible condition, often very narrow with like no railings on them. They would totally not pass inspection these days. So you kind of just had to trust your horse that the horse knew where it was going, especially at night, because you couldn't see anything. 
several times she was pretty close to being dumped off of these bridges into these deep gullies of rushing water. But she said the guardian angels were watching over her. She could have easily died on Mm. some of these journeys. Roads were also really muddy during the spring. Or if you got really muddy in the spring and then it froze, frozen mud tire tracks are like terrible. You can barely get through them. So it was not super easy. But she was in a better place physically with her practice. So now she's like, hmm, those little nieces of mine, they need a better home. Her father and her other relatives were really not supportive of her wanting to bring these girls into her house. She was a single woman. She was making her own living. And bringing three kids into her home was bound to be really, really difficult for her. But when she went to visit the oldest two that in, in the home where they were, she couldn't leave them there. They just looked so sad. And they tugged at her heartstrings and she's like, okay, you guys are coming with me. So, yes. And they do really, they really wanted to be with Aunt Bessie because Aunt Bessie was amazing. So against all of these warnings and disapprovals, she brought all three of the girls into her house. So this also meant she had to figure out how to care for all of them, which also included hiring a housekeeper and housekeepers who are good and aren't um, lazy or literally doing drugs, which happened to her, they're hard to find. She did end up getting a good one. The children were so happy to be with Aunt Bessie. And things were going actually pretty well for her in Moville at this time until 1907. Uh, <laughs> the next year. A year later. <laughs> so this is something that I didn't actually know about our American history. Granted, I haven't really studied turn of the century American history that much because I did so much in school that I got bored with it. But there was a financial panic in 1907. And when I went to like Google this to research it a little bit, there were a lot of financial panics before the Great Depression, which Mm -hmm. I didn't realize. (laughs) Yeah, our financial situation was quite up and down for a long time in this country, which probably explains a lot of the financial reforms that happened afterwards. But anyway, the panic did not treat her well, which not surprising. There were a lot of excessive bank failures in the U.S. And it, the panic didn't last very long, um, but it made a really major mark on the financial state of the country that had been pretty prosperous for the previous 10 years. So several railroads went into receivership. 13 New York banks went into bankruptcy. And of course, that affected thousands of other banks across the country. So of course, then there's major unemployment. People couldn't borrow money. They couldn't get money from the banks. So Bessie's business dropped off significantly because people weren't going to go to the doctor if they couldn't afford it unless it was like super emergency. But then if that happened, they probably couldn't pay her and she couldn't get to her bank accounts either. So it was just, it was this whole thing for her. And she had invested all of her savings into this new building and she had been making payments, but it was still mortgaged. And the mortgage lender was this ruthless dude and started foreclosure on her, even though she was like, hey, I got, I got three kids here. I've been making regular payments. Everybody's in, in bad times. But he's like, nope, foreclosure, you have to be out. And like the icing on the cake of all of this, a new guy doctor was going to move into her space after she got kicked out. He was a local guy and his parents were really influential in the community. So she was basically like booted out to give this male doctor her spot, which made me really angry. (laughs) How rude. She She was pretty financially ruined at this point and was having kind of a hard time dealing with that. But there was this one super kind dude in town and she called him Uncle Ira 
And he was just this kind-hearted gentleman. And he gave her a loan of $100 to tide her over, which was a lot of money in 1907, mm. especially mm. during a panic. And even though he didn't really have a lot of his own, he gave her this money and kind of saved her. And he also planted the idea in her head that she could move out west and start over. So with all of this financial turmoil, she made a pretty radical decision to leave Moville and move west. It may have been a more reasonable thing to stay where she was and try to regain what she had lost because she did still have her practice. She was a, a well-respected doctor. She probably could have stuck it out, figured out something. She was a very resourceful person and she probably could have done it. But the West was calling. Her dad did not like this. He mm -hmm. was like, you are most certainly going to come to want if you move out onto the frontier with three little kids. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> But she thought through this decision, did not make it lightly. She had some pretty solid reasons, I think. First, of course, her financial situation was just not great. And if you're going to move and make a radical life decision, might as well do it now, right? Secondly, she had always wanted to move west. She came from a long line of pioneers. Her dad was a pioneer in western Iowa and South Dakota. Her grandpa and her great-grandpa had been pioneers in their day, too, coming out from New York to Iowa when it was opened for settling. And her brother had gone west to Washington to practice mm. as a doctor. So it was kind of in her blood to be one of those people. I, we just talked about this in our Steinbeck book club discussion. <laughs> she came from a family who wanted to be on the move. So it was just in her blood to want to go west and experience this and, and have life on the frontier. And... Also at this time, this is the time in our history of the Homestead Act in 1862, obviously a little bit earlier than, than this, but the federal government was opening up all these grazing lands in western states for homesteading, including the Laramie area of Wyoming. So there was this rush of farmers from Iowa and Wisconsin and Nebraska to move further west and claim this land that was free as long as you settled on it. And there were also land grants going on with the railroad companies. The government gave subsidies of 20 sections of land for every mile of railroad built from the Union Pacific Railroad. And that was 5 million acres in Wyoming alone, which is like the size of the state of Delaware or something. Like, that's a lot of land. The land companies that were selling this land wanted to make it really lucrative for the people who were looking to buy it. So they wanted to be able to provide all of these services that people would want which would include schools and churches and doctors. So there was actually a call for doctors to be moving out to these homesteads in order to provide these medical services. And Bessie was actually approached about moving west to one of these towns. So the town where she was going to move to would be Carpenter, Wyoming, which if you Google it, it's still there and it's still tiny. <laughs> it's about 30 miles southeast of Cheyenne, about six miles north of the Colorado border in the high grasslands of Wyoming. She would have a homestead site adjoining the southwest town site of Carpenter, which would be a pretty good location to be right next to, well, quote unquote, right next to where the town was going to be. So she actually went out to Cheyenne and Carpenter to file on this homestead on July 6, 1907. She did not waste any time. And a random fun fact about Wyoming, I didn't know where to put this in in her story, but I wanted to also share this. It was actually the first territory to grant women the right to vote, enacted yes. on December 10th, 1869, and it's still celebrated as Wyoming Day. Huh. 
And Wyoming elected the first woman governor in 1924. Didn't they have the first Hmm. woman? I'm Googling this right now to actually confirm that it was Wyoming that did this. They had a lot of firsts for women and for- Oh no, she was, Jeanette Rankin was the first- female house of representative or representative but she was from montana and they actually elected her to office before women could vote Mm. which i've always thought but yes out west possibilities for women were a whole lot more real yes than they were in the east yep things were a lot more equal for people if you were a person that was brave enough to go out west you faced all the risks yep So she went out, she has her land contract, she's ready to go. So she would have to have her house built because she can't move out there without any buildings on her homestead. So she made arrangements to have that building built on her homestead, as well as have a well drilled because obviously no utilities in the middle of the prairie. When it was ready for her, she packed and shipped all of her office items ahead of her. And then she packed up herself and her little nieces, boarded the train to Wyoming, and she used all of nearly all of her money just to just to get these train tickets. They had to wait a day when they got to Cheyenne to get to Carpenter because there was only one train a day that went from Cheyenne to Carpenter. Mm. So when they neared Carpenter, they actually stopped at Baxter Ranch, which was two miles west of Carpenter because Carpenter didn't actually exist yet. There was no train depot there, so they couldn't stop. There was nothing at this Baxter Ranch except Prairie and Ranch House. And they had to spend the night at the ranch because they couldn't make the trip to the homestead before Mm -hmm. dark. So when they arrived the next day at their homestead, it was this little house on this wide expanse of prairie where they would make their home for some time. And they finally arrived on December 18th, 1907, which I feel like that happened like so fast. It was like mm-hmm. five months. That's all it took for her to just move her life out west. She had a total of 75 cents in her pocket when she arrived there. That's less than $20 in today's money. So talk about courage to make this journey and literally start over from almost nothing. So when we talk about life as a pioneer, a lot of us probably can relate to Laura Ingalls Wilder stories, Mm. whether or not they're entirely true, like we talked about in our Steinbeck podcast. (laughs) But a lot of Dr. Bessie's details are pretty similar because pioneering hadn't changed much between Laura's time in South Dakota in the 1880s, Dr. Bessie's life in Wyoming in the early 1900s. Very similar experiences with what a homestead would be, what it looks like, what they had to deal with. Laura was only six years older than Bessie, so their pioneer life experiences would have been pretty similar, which I think is kind of cool. Pioneer life was hard. No way around it. It was just a hard life. You're literally making a life and a livelihood out of nothing. So the pioneers who settled the homesteads in the town had to consciously create their own social life and community. And every person on the frontier was in an equal place when they got there. No one really had anything. Everyone was really starting from scratch. It was a hard life, but they did it together and they built this community together. And you learned a lot about yourself and your grit and the will of the human community to survive when you all had to band together to get through all of these adversities that would happen on the frontier because you had no one else to rely on other than yourself and like the 10 other people that lived relatively close to you. So her house was very plain and simple, typical homestead building, three rooms downstairs, one unfinished room upstairs. That upstairs room was their bedroom and their storage. And because it was unfinished, it got really cold, of course. The kitchen was the kitchen, the dining room, 
general living area. The front room was her office and her sitting room. And the third room was her utility room and also her treatment room and examination room, along with her dispensary of drugs. So this, what, four-room building is essentially her house and her doctor's office all rolled into one. And she Mm. had three kids living with her, too. They had no indoor plumbing, no bathroom. The water had to be hauled in from the well and heated on the stove for any washing or cooking or medical treatment. Mm. They did have a small heater, plus uh, the kitchen stove to keep them warm in the winter. And they used buffalo chips, which we all know what that is, for the stove. <laughs> because hey, we, Sarah, I think you might have to tell us. It was buffalo poop. Because there weren't any trees. This is legitimate prairie, no trees. So I went to Google Maps and looked at it. There are trees now in Carpenter, and they've probably always been planted since she settled there in 1907, which Mm. is kind of cool to think about. Well, and that's the thing. I've driven, I haven't driven in Carpenter, but I've driven, you know, the from Pine Bluffs to Cheyenne many, many times because that's the way we go out west to visit my husband's family. Mm. There is nothing there. Mm -hmm. Like Cheyenne is a city. Surrounded by nothing. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, but it's bleak. Mm-hmm. This is not like, you know, imagine Little House on the Prairie, this this prairie of lush green grasses, well watered. And no, yeah. it's everything nope. that grows there is pretty much irrigated. Yep. Like <laughs> yep. it is it is frontier, really even today. Yeah. It's not a place that people are gonna flock to and try to make a life. And so the fact that she did and did make a life, that's really speaks volumes to her character and her grit. Yes. And she was one of the first people that settled there, too. It's not like she went there and there were other people to help her. Like, she was literally one of the first people that settled the town of Carpenter, which is, I think that's so cool. So in addition to her house, she later added a barn for two horses and a cow and a small chicken house and a coal shed. It was prairie grassland as far as the eye could see. But it was hers and she had built it. She did get a bit shorted, though, because even though the government had promised her 160 acres, the surveyors had actually made a mistake. And so she ended up with 93 acres. Someone's bad at math. Jeez. Right. I mean, 93 acres is still a a lot of land. And being a landowner has always kind of been this thing to aspire to in our American culture. And so that's how it was for her, too. These pioneers on the frontier had some very unique challenges, like a significant lack of rain, and it's really hard to grow stuff with no water. Average rainfall is only 15 inches, and in a bad year in Missouri in 1953, we got 23 inches, and farmers were like, whoa, I need some emergency aid because this is bad. So the pioneers dealt with lots of wind and dust storms and blizzards. The dust storms could wipe out a crop in one go, and you could just basically be done for the year or permanently and have to leave because this dust storm took out your crop. And it was even worse in the winter when it got uh, like 20 below zero or worse. A human couldn't survive very long in those conditions. She was a doctor for people, but funnily enough, her first case right after she settled was for a horse. Um, The guy showed up and was like, help my horse. And she's like, well, I'm a people doctor. And he was like, well, a horse is practically the same, just quadruple the dose of medicine and it should work. And that's what she did. And it actually worked. And so I was like t- wandering around telling people about her because she had saved his horse. And it was amazing. That's the most Wyoming thing I think I've ever heard. Right. So she was successfully able to grow her practice, even among these harsh conditions and the fact that people were so spread out. 
It did take her about two years to build her practice back to the level of where she was before she moved from Moville. But she was the only doctor for miles. She figured a 30 mile by 30 mile territory. And that's by horse and buggy. That's not by car. So long distances to travel in between patients, especially for women in confinement. Again, no roads, no trees. You pretty much had to guess where you were going. No uh, Google Maps to help you like figure out where you're going. You just kind of had to follow things and use your sense and hope you got there, especially at night or in a storm. She actually endured a blizzard. She got caught in one and nearly died, but she finally ended up at shelter and she realized that she had just gone in a big circle and ended up right back where she left. But she survived. She also survived a prairie grass fire that nearly took out her entire complex. She also had to manage the really scarce medical resources. She had no help for her multiple patients only one room to treat people. So if they needed longer term care, she had to find a place to board them so she could be close by to administer treatments. And she had no nurses or anything to help her either. Blood transfusions weren't a thing yet. Um, most of our modern medical treatments for illnesses or diseases weren't a thing yet. There wasn't really a close hospital either. So she had to deal with most everything as she could. She had no x-ray machine or other imaging equipment. So she often set broken bones by feel. like. Can you imagine the skill that it takes to set a broken bone just by feeling it? Okay, but Sarah, we have not had x-rays for long in our human history. People have been doing that for a long they, time. They have been. They we're, have just, we're just spoiled, aren't we? <laughs> we are. <laughs> but it does require, I mean, setting bones with or without x-rays requires so much finesse, but also brute strength. Yeah. yeah. you got to basically wrestle the bones back into place. It's, <sighs> it is not... Uh, yeah, not pass the page out. Dr. Bessie is an amazing person. Delivering babies during this time, too, was really unsanitary. Mm. These shacks, homesteader shacks, were nearly generally one or two rooms, no running water, no clean area. You got flies going back and forth between the horse barn and the house. I mean, you can imagine the kind of infections and bacteria and, and things that she had to deal with and just making sure that she was being as sanitary mm -hmm. as possible. She was a yeah. very brave and courageous and resourceful person to, to be able to do this successfully and like right. not lose a lot of people. Like She was really good at her job. This is totally off topic, but I, I'm still thinking about her sister-in-law who died of pure pearl fever. You know how they how they fix that in the medical community and cut down the incidence of it significantly? Made doctors wash their hands before delivery. Oh yeah. Like mm. wash That's your hands, all. people. That's all it took. <laughs> like that didn't it completely eliminate it, but it cut down the incidence mightily. Yeah. But so her having probably knowing all of this and mm -hmm. having to deliver these babies in areas where sanitation was more wishful thinking than actual possibility that had to have been frustrating mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. but she dealt with it and she loved it she absolutely loved being a doctor and living on the frontier like she thrived there and having her nieces with her too like she had so much fun with these kids and reading stories to them and the bleak winters and all this obviously a pioneer at heart so Bessie was one of the very first settlers in that area of Wyoming in 1907, and so many came after her. The railroad did finally build a depot in Carpenter, so it was 
actually a town and the town started popping up too. The closest post office was actually uh, like 13 miles away at least. So Bessie actually petitioned the post office department in Washington to have their own post office and it was granted to her and she like got voluntold. <laughs> uh, they made her the first postmaster on March 31st, 1908, which is really cool to be like a doctor and a postmaster. Hmm. She did eventually give it to her assistant to be the, the like full-time postmaster because hmm. she just didn't have the time because... She's a doctor. So life on the frontier wasn't all grim and dirty. They did know how, how to have a lot of fun. They had to make their own fun frontier style. They created their own debate and literary club where they would come to discuss these topics. And it was really popular. The sharing of knowledge was, was quite the thing to do in these days. They didn't have TV they didn't have radio, so they had to make their own fun. So they would come and talk about things together. They had fairs. They had potlucks. They would just randomly show up at other people's houses just for the company. Um, Frontier Days in Cheyenne was the biggest attraction in the area. And there's actually still a museum in Cheyenne that you can actually, that you can go see what Frontier Days was all about. They couldn't always make it there, but like that was the pinnacle of entertainment for them. Dr. Bessie actually won a few ribbons at their first local fair for fancy work. I would really hope that a surgeon would have some good stitching skills. So yep. right. that works for me. Yeah. 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 I was going to uh, say, were they rating her like stitch, like her suture work or something? Yeah. Like, is that what they were looking at? Here is an arm where I have stitched. Here's this arm that I've stitched. <laughs> I have cross-stitched, actually. <laughs> The men would go hunting. A lot of it was for coyotes because they were pests and they loved fishing, but there really wasn't any water around them. So they couldn't really do that. But they did organize baseball leagues for the entire area because we're in America, obviously. And every town had lots of land for baseball diamonds because they're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so they all built their own baseball diamonds and they would like travel around with this traveling league baseball. And it was super fun. They also had dances where the young men and women would actually hopefully meet their future spouses because they were so spread out that this was the time for all the youngins to come together and be like, hey, let's get married. They also created a newspaper, they got a bank, they built schools, and they actually ended up with the best general store for many miles around. People would travel to Carpenter for this general store. Church was a little more complicated because all of these settlers came from a variety of different religious groups. The Methodists were the largest number, but then there were also some smatterings of Catholics and Lutherans who also came in. The school that they had built was the public building, so these different groups would alternate having services. And they didn't have any permanent pastors, so there were a few retired preachers who would fill in for the different groups. But it was a very laid-back kind of style of church. There was not a lot of formal things that were happening. They also had very few instruments, so the singing was mostly unaccompanied. And they did as best as they could. Hit or miss. That's whether or not they were actually on key. Mm -hmm. So, But it worked. It worked for them. One of the most influential parts of the social and cultural life was the mail order catalog. And I love this. I have looked through one of these mail order catalogs from the turn of the century, and they are amazing. So these books were gigantic, like 1,400 pages, massive books of all of the things that you could order from Sears Roebuck or Montgomery Ward. And this is what kept these pioneers connected back to the life of the big cities back east, and they could learn all of the latest farm implements or the new fashions. And it was a way to be 
happy in the middle of a super cold and dark winter. You could like pretend you were window shopping in a big city by flipping through this mail order catalog. The stuff you can find in those is really cool too. And like a whole cross section of culture in turn of the century America. Do you remember when uh, Wendy's, the fast food place, used to put old catalog images on their tables? Yes. Yes. I loved those. Mm. Same thing, I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. Bring Uh back yellow Wendy's. (laughs) Okay. So you're probably maybe starting to wonder um, where her husband comes into this story because (laughs) she become a Lutheran lady. Because, (laughs) yeah. Where did she become a Lutheran Lutheran lady or a pastor's wife yet? So, and I'm like way into this podcast. So Uh bring it. This might might be the best love story ever. It's so (laughs) serendipitous. I love it. So she had to go up to Burns for a confinement case, which was about 13 miles north of Carpenter. And it was a day-long trip. So she was staying there for a little while, taking her meals at the hotel. And the people that were there at the hotel eating, you know, typical frontier men, big burly guys with big beards. But then she noticed this one young man in particular. He didn't really fit in with the rest of the crowd. He looked very lively and cheerful. And he looked really interested in everyone's stories and kind of laid back and like really cool dude. And she was like, hmm, I wonder who this is. So she Hmm. finally asked the waitress who he was. And the waitress said that it was the student minister who was new in town taking care of temporary care of the new congregation, Lutheran congregation in Burns. And that church is still there, according to Google Maps, by the way. So it turns out he had also asked the waitress who she was. (laughs) (laughs) So Bessie was a little taken aback because she actually uh, never really had a high regard for ministers as people who were very high of character or very well-rounded individuals or very like strong-willed people or like people that would really survive very well on the frontier. Hmm. And when she was young, she had very adamantly told her friends she would never marry a minister, which is really funny. Uh-oh. <laughs> Famous last home. words. Exactly. No. <laughs> I hear she you, Bessie. Can't. She couldn't get him out of her head on her way home. Fast forward uh, to early the next morning and a patient shows up on her doorstep. Lo and behold, it's him. What? (laughs) So he had been riding the paths back to his home base when his Bronco horse, not truck, his Bronco ran into some wire fence that a new homesteader had put across one of the paths because apparently that's what people did. So the horse panicked when he ran into this wire and plunged forward, which pinned the minister's leg between the horse and the wire, which caused this massive gash in his leg, like all the way down to the bone. So somehow, sorry, there's a lot of like gross stuff in here. Somehow he made it to the livery barn and the livery man actually got him to her. And he was really lucky that it missed his artery because he wouldn't have actually made it. So she brought him in, she put him in her examination room, and she stitched together his wound literally layer by layer because it went all the way to the bone. Um, I love that fancy work. Yeah. Award winning. (laughs) And he did all of this without any anesthetic, like zero numbing agent 
I can't even imagine what kind of pain that would have been. So after this incident, she developed this very high respect for him and his fortitude during this procedure and that he was talking to her this whole time about all kinds of stuff and like asking her about her life and like discussing all of these subjects while he's like literally being stitched back together. She's like, wow, this is a pretty interesting person. And you know what? I just got to say that is such a lutheran theologian thing to do be like i may be cut and bleeding <laughs> but let's talk theology girl you and me while i've got oh you here goodness. let's fall in love it's amazing i love it i love it he was also somebody that she could level with intellectually because i mean she's pretty smart right and because a pastor's work is so similar to a doctor's in in the how many people you deal with and the kinds of things you can and can't talk about and the weird societal stuff. She was like, wow, we have a lot in common and I can actually like talk to him and not feel weird about it. So then she was like, well, um, this wound is really bad and you really shouldn't walk around on it much. So she had him stay with her for a couple of weeks so that he could recuperate before he went out and about walking around. And at first he was like, that's going to be expensive. And she's like, no, no, you need to do it. So you'll heal properly. So they ended up having all this time together Mm. because he really couldn't be walking around much. And one day she left him to take care of her nieces while she was out on a call. And when when she came back, he was reading them Shakespeare plays. Like, come on. (laughs) She was totally smitten. There were a few problems, though. The obvious one, he's a Lutheran minister. She's a Methodist. She knows nothing about Lutheranism, right? That was obviously going to be a problem if they were going to eventually get married, maybe. Secondly, there is a language issue. So back in these days, you were definitely an outsider if you didn't speak the church's language, which would have been German. It would have been nearly a fireable offense to marry somebody who didn't speak German. And then her nieces, she's got this three these three girls with her. What, what's going to happen to them if they end up getting married. The biggest thing, though, was their age. And Mm. she had done the math while they were kind of talking and she was figuring out when he graduated from college and all these things. And she was 14 years older than him. That's a big age gap, especially Mm. since she was older than him. And I was going to say, not a big age gap the other way around in this day. Right. But a very big age gap. Yes. Yes. Not very socially acceptable. And people would absolutely gossip about that. Hmm. So there were these things that she was wrestling with, like, well, I really like this guy, but like all of like those are some pretty big things to deal with. So he obviously had to go back to seminary for his fourth year since he was a vicar. And they kept talking via letters. And finally, she got the letter that said he had actually graduated early to be placed in an urgent call on the frontier in Western Canada in Pincher Creek, Alberta which is about 40 miles north of Glacier National Park in Montana and about 40 miles east of the British Columbia border. So this call included several places in this area and even going across into eastern and central British Columbia, which, by the way, is beautiful country. Mm-hmm. Like, the mountains there are gorgeous. At this time, Bessie actually developed a stomach issue that involved major surgery. So she chose to go to a renowned doctor in Washington near her brother to do the surgery and... Funny part, she could stay with her brother while she recuperated, and where she was in Washington wasn't too far from where he was in British Columbia, so she invited him to come visit her and spend about a week and a half together, and they had the talk. Would it work? And they decided, you know what? This'll work. So she decided to do confirmation at the church in Burns, and she would become a Lutheran, barring uh, that she found anything in Lutheran doctrine she couldn't agree with. 
And then she would get her German books out and she would learn to speak the language. And then for her nieces, they decided that they would actually postpone their marriage for two or three years until the oldest two could be enrolled in teacher and nursing school. They would take the youngest, Rita, with them. And then the age difference, they talked about it for a long time. I mean, obviously, there's nothing you can do about an age difference. You can't, like, magically make yourself older or younger. But they decided that they were mature enough to make this decision, and they were going to go for it. And she says, and I quote, We were sure that when the birds mate, they do not consult the calendar to determine which was hatched before the other. Mm. So there you go. The birds can know do it. <laughs> so maybe the hardest thing uh, for all of this for her was that she would have to give up her medical practice. And she never really planned on giving it up. She didn't really want to give it up. But this was like the best reason to give it up for a new vocation. She had come to learn that ministers were, in fact, real men who humbly served everyone else. And they were strong and courageous. And she wasn't really that upset about giving up her practice, although it would be a very interesting transition for her. And she wasn't sad that she had studied medicine because she would never have met Alfred had she not become a doctor on the frontier. So the wait before their wedding was a long one. But finally, the day came and Alfred came to meet her in Cheyenne and they were married on September 28th, 1912 by the Reverend John Hilgendorf, who, of course, was one of the Synod Vice Presidents. And then they began their life together on the Canadian frontier. Mm. They had three kiddos, Dorothy, Helen, and Eugene Alfred. Uh, Eugene would grow up to be a pastor, and one of their daughters married a pastor. I want to know all of their stories, too, and maybe somebody in the lounge actually knows some of their stories. We'll see. So life on the Canadian frontier was similar, but also very different from life on the American frontier. The culture was and still is very British, so she had to make those adjustments. The parsonage was a plain frontier log cabin about six miles south of the town of Pincher Creek. These days, it's actually in town. It was one floor, no plumbing, no heating, hole in the ground for the cellar. Um, water had to be carried from a spring a little ways away. It was a lone building on the rolling hills of the prairie. But you could see the Canadian Rockies. You could see Chief Mountain in Montana and Crow's Nest Mountain and Seven Sisters in British Columbia. Beautiful area. Very pleasant in the summer. Really cold in the winter. And there was plenty of water this time. So crops were abundant. No more of the Wyoming dryness. Pastor Raywinkle was the circuit rider, which means he literally rode a horse to all of these different preaching stations in Crow's Nest Pass and into British Columbia because this church was growing quite a bit at this point. That meant he was gone for days at a time, so it really got very lonely in the parsonage. Trinity Lutheran Church in Pincher Creek was a hub for Lutheranism for most of that area, and many of the churches in that area were actually started from that church. So that is a huge influence on the rest of Canadian Lutheranism out in that area in Alberta, British Columbia. She was also making a pretty major adjustment to being a pastor's wife as a new Lutheran, as pastor's wives I'm sure can attest to. Talk about a major cultural change coming from a Methodist church to Lutheranism pretty quickly. Liturgy and ceremony were completely foreign to her. It felt like she was in a Catholic church and the music was way different with organs and, you know, Lutheran style singing with gusto. The services were also in German with one English service a month for those who didn't speak German. So she had learned the German so she could kind of follow along and she even played the organ for a few services. 
her professional experience of meeting new people and being able to build these relationships really came in handy as a pastor's wife. She was able to to really get to know people well. And she was constantly playing host people from their congregation and from all over. So learning how to interact with these people was a definite learning curve. The people who came west uh, from Eastern Canada were French Canadian, German Catholic, British, Scotch, Irish, some Indians, and she played host to all of them. So she had to really learn how to connect with all of these people. So in 1914, Pastor Ray Winkle took a call to Edmonton, and they would actually be there for 14 years. And life in Edmonton was even more different than life in Pincher Creek because Edmonton was a really big city of Canada at that point, being founded in 1795 for fur trading. And it was the capital of the province. And it's a lot further north than Pincher Creek. So the weather's a lot different too. Being the provincial capital meant that the universities and schools and medical centers and all of these major conveniences of big city life were there that she hadn't really been around in a really long time. And Edmonton was the northernmost and westernmost outpost for immigration in Canada at this time. So all of these immigrants that were going west would have gone through there. The parsonage in Edmonton, much more modern than in Pincher Creek. Like, it actually had electric lights and indoor plumbing. Still no central heating, still a hole in the ground for the cellar, but a bit of an improvement. And it's actually still standing in Edmonton. You can go visit it. Uh, It's on this historical places list, which is really cool. The Canadian government had a similar homestead set up to offer uh, free tracts of, of 160 acres to homesteaders who were moving west. Um, so they had a huge population shift during this time, which included a mass migration from Europe. The Völkerwanderung uh, included a lot of German Lutherans, and many of them had no idea how, how to find a church or a pastor once they settled. So Pastor Ray Winkle was actually the one who would be going around searching out all of these Lutheran immigrants and getting them connected to churches. And the church played a huge role in getting these immigrants really settled into their new country. And Pastor Ray Winkle was really influential with many of the churches in this area. So he has a hand in so much of the Lutheran culture of this uh, this area of Edmonton and surrounding. This also meant that Bessie had to learn to manage these relationships with all of these new immigrants who were new to the country. And the parsonage became this international embassy, um, helping all of these new immigrants find jobs and churches and housing and medical care and education and on and on. Pastors' wives from the area would actually come to find work in Edmonton because these mission churches weren't paying enough. So they housed a lot of these uh, wives who were coming to find work as well. They would also board pastor's kids, these missionary pastor kids who needed confirmation since a lot of these preaching stations that were really far away didn't have a lot of uh, resources for this. They also had the privilege of hosting many prominent members of the Lutheran community because of their location in Edmonton. So Dr. Frederick Fotenhauer, who's president of the Synod, Dr. Franz Pieper, president of Concordia Seminary, uh, Mr. Henry Horst, Synod Board of Directors, Dr. William Cohn, president of Concordia Teachers College in River Forest, Reverend C.F. Walther, director of missions, professors from the seminary, all of these people. So they were really the center of Lutheran society in Canada at the time. So Bessie was really trying to fit in with her congregation. Her German wasn't great. Their German accent was different from the one that she knew, but she really got along well. So they were in Edmonton for the start of World War I, mm-hmm. um, which was a very different thing because they're in Canada, not in America. And war conditions were especially hard for the people that they served. 
the U.S. didn't enter World War I until 1917, even though the war began in 1914. And since Canada was British, they were technically at war with Germany in 1914. And those three years in between caused a lot mm. of strife because some Lutheran pastors in mm. the States were speaking in support of Germany. And this was causing a lot of trouble for the German Lutherans in Canada. Mm. And they were accused of being unpatriotic. And the German Lutheran Church really suffered a lot because of the war and because of the aftermath. And life during this time in general wartime was just difficult as well. Um, you had inflation and rations and missionaries in these preaching stations just had, had like no money. It's hard to find clothes and food, but they were there helping them through all of this. And at this time, during this time, uh, Pastor Ray Winkle actually turned down a call to go to Holy Cross here in St. Louis um, oh, because they saw how great this need was in Edmonton. And it was a very lucrative thing to leave and go to the States, but they didn't. They stayed there. So conditions for Germans in Canada after World War I, really grim. A lot of hate propaganda. They were rejected for jobs. Any German was considered suspicious. Even if they were loyal, they were accused of all kinds of wild things. And the Lutheran parochial schools actually closed during this time because of the treatment of German Lutherans. And congregations were closing too. But Pastor Ray Winkle wouldn't stand for this. And he did whatever he could to defend the honor of these German Canadians. He spoke with government officials, wrote articles to the German press, held mass meetings. He even translated the national anthem into German so native speakers could participate in their own language. So this was a big deal for him. And I'm sure Bessie ended up being a part of these things because he was so heavily involved in this campaign for equal treatment of all of these citizens. Conditions for the German Lutherans in Canada post-war actually did a lot to solidify the Canadian Lutheran Church as culturally different from the American Lutheran Church. And it actually started some organization on their part. They organized the congregations in Canada into separate Canadian districts between 1916 and 1921. Concordia College in Edmonton was opened on October 31st, 1921. And this college still exists today, but it isn't Lutheran anymore. So you may be familiar with Concordia College Edmonton. Not Lutheran, but it was. And Pastor Ray Winkle was actually one of the founders of this college. And he was a professor there from 1922 to 1928. And Bessie was likely the medical matron for this college when it was on its original campus from 1921 to 1927. Hmm. So the Ray played a pretty significant role in developing and establishing this Canadian Lutheran identity for these churches in Edmonton and in Western Canada. They would not stay in Canada forever, however. Pastor Ray Winkle received a call to serve as president of St. John's College in Winfield, Kansas. Shout out to all of the Johnnies. Uh, they weren't going to take it as they were really deep in this work in Edmonton. But for Bessie's health, they were convinced to go. So she had been suffering from these really bad uh, sinus issues and the warmer climate was supposed to help. So they moved to Kansas and they started in Winfield on May 24th, 1928. And Bessie put her medical training to use as the official dormitory house doctor, and she developed a new health clinic on campus to improve medical conditions. And she was able to be involved in local hospitals and, and local meetings of the American Medical Association. And they actually were there during the beginning of the Great Depression, uh, which would have been a very difficult time to be a president of a university. They were talking about closing the campus, but Pastor Ray Winkle was like, nope, uh, I'm going to make this place better. So he set out for more academic standards to attract even more students. And that included getting both the high school and junior college accredited, which is not an easy thing, especially mm -hmm. during the Great Depression. And then in 1935, they declined a call to serve as president of Concordia College in Milwaukee. But the next year, 1936, 
he received a call to chair the theology department at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And this one they had to take. Her description of St. Louis is really funny, though. She says, St. Louis is an interesting city, the old gateway to the West. It might also be called the Rome of the Lutheran Church in America and the Plymouth of the Lutheran Pilgrim Fathers. For Lutherans of that branch of Lutheranism known as the Missouri Synod, all roads lead to St. Louis. Everywhere one meets with historical landmarks and places where some sainted church father left his footprints in the sands of time. Still true. Still counts. Totally a thing. (laughs) In 1939, they tried to persuade Pastor Ray Winkle to accept a call as executive secretary for the Board for World Missions, which he really would have enjoyed. He loved missions, a very mission-minded pastor, and he really wanted to travel the world. But Bessie wasn't in the best health. She wanted their kids to have their father around. Travel in 1939 would have been really long and arduous, and he would have been gone for really long stretches of time. So he declined that call. But in 1956, he did end up with a five-month sabbatical, and he spent some of that time teaching at the Lutheran Seminary in Nagarquil, India, where we still have people teaching. So he got to travel the world at that time, going to Australia, Holy Land, Greece, Rome, Europe. So he got his world travel in. And he was even a visiting professor in South America. So... This is where her story kind of wraps up. They end they end up living the rest of their lives in St. Louis. Her nieces grew up to be uh, wonderful women as teachers and nurses. Both of their own daughters became nurses, and their son was the campus pastor at the University of Wisconsin. So Bessie didn't actually live to see her book published. She died on May 26, 1962, and was buried in Concordia Cemetery on May 29th. And one day, we're going to do a cemetery tour. There are a lot of really amazing Lutherans buried in that cemetery. Mm -hmm. And before I'm done, because I know this has been a really, really long story, but it's so good. I do want to give a shout out to several people. Concordia Historical Institute helped a lot researching this book. Uh, Larry Junker, the executive director of St. John's College Alumni Association, as well as several Canadian Lutherans, including Alex Steinke, Dr. James Gimbel, president of Concordia Lutheran Seminary in Edmonton, Pastor Wendell Ritz, who is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Pincher Creek, Alberta, and Pastor Mark Lobitz, who's pastor at Shepherd of the Valley Lutheran Church in Canmore, Alberta. Uh, for giving me a few historical nuggets. And if you love this story, you should try to get your hands on this book. It's out of print. It's kind of hard to find, but there are some copies available in the corners of the internet. If you search, you can probably find one. And if you're in St. Louis, if you're local here, you can actually go to the seminary library and check out the copy that I currently have because that's how I was able to read it. And also for all of you who have kiddos or work with kiddos, there is a Dr. Bessie Hero of Faith book available from Concordia Publishing House. I highly recommend you read that and get your hands on a copy of Dr. Bessie. I know I will be because I love this story. And there ends this time with Sarah. So if you do want a copy of Dr. Bessie, beware, you may be having a bidding war with Sarah Gulseth. Yes. There are <laughs> some that are like on the hunt. $500 on Amazon. It's crazy. Like that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> I think I'll go with Pastor Trevor Sutton's Concordia Publishing House, Heroes of Faith, junior biography, because I love me a good junior biography. Mm. And it's a very good snapshot of her history. I love Dr. Bessie. The book is just really good. I couldn't put it down. That's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Amazing life she led. You know, we talked about in um, our book club episode last week about how America, John Steinbeck in his, his book says, America was founded by was built by giants. Mm. Where are they now? And we talked about that in the context of, of masculinity, but 
I don't think it was just male giants who built America. No. Mm-hmm. It was female giants. And, you know, and the the quote that you read from the preface where it says that 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 she made an unusual contribution. I want to push back against that a little bit. I think women have been usually in the practice of making monumental contributions to faith and to culture. And Dr. Bessie's story is a little bit more exciting than some of them, mm-hmm. but it's no less important, mm. no more important, rather, that Usual every... Usual mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that there are so many un- unsung heroes of the faith. Yeah. yeah, But just because we aren't aware of their contributions doesn't mean that we aren't standing on their shoulders. Mm. Yep. So I'm glad for the reminder. The legacy that she has, uh, that that they both have in both the Canadian Lutheran Church and in our own Lutheran Church is pretty significant. They made their mark in a lot of places. And she I'm, just led a cool life. Like mm-hmm. I'm writing a movie life. script right now as we talk. Like it's being yes. written in my brain. Dr. Bessie, Lutheran medicine woman. Yes. yes. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Methodist, then Lutheran. Uh, anyway, Lutheran, <laughs> medicine woman of faith. Yeah. There you go. Uh-huh. I'm telling you. Well, ladies. This was super fun. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad I got to share her story with you. You can join our group on Facebook and you can share your own stories of Lutheran ladies in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can also find us on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can share your stories and we'll share them on our page if you tag us. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org slash Lutheran Ladies Lounge or on your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm dying of dysentery. (laughs) And I'm just dying. (laughs) (laughs) But I like your fancy work. Right. I love the fancy work. I love it. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge.